Hi guys, it's Andy McDonald, physiotherapist and strength and conditioning coach, and welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Today's show is going to be a conversation that I had with Elliot Clark, a senior rehabilitation physio from Harlequins Rugby back during lockdown. It's been a little while since we've had one of the Harlequins team on. We of course had Ed Lee and Tom Batchelor on previously. And whilst I think it's great that most of the time we go wide and speak to different people from different teams, on the flip side, it's actually quite nice also to get a more complete insight into how one team functions, as is the case with Harlequins, where we've had strength and conditioning, sports science, and in today's episode, physio with Elliot. Within this conversation, we'll be discussing setting coach expectations for prognosis and return to play. Rehab frameworks in sports where concurrent physical qualities can exist, like rugby. And then we'll also be talking about reconditioning and return to running. To bring you listeners some news and updates on what previous guests are up to, Dan Howells, the Houston Astros Head Strength and Conditioning Coordinator, who I spoke to for episode 25, has just launched a venture called Collaborate Sports. The structure of the programs and events that Dan's running with Collaborate Sports is to have attendees hear quality real-world content and stories, in addition to networking and breakout sessions, so that people can reflect and share their own experiences and thoughts. All disciplines have engaged with Dan in this venture to date, including S&C, physio, coaches and sports scientists. So the collaboration aim between participants is real. Dan runs three main programs through his Collaborate Sports platform. He offers bespoke one-to-one coaching, a six-month interactive personal development program, the IPD, that brings together multiple attendees, as well as standalone interactive workshops with guest speakers. Of relevance to the Informed Performance podcast, Ben Ashworth, the other half of the podcast, will be his first guest collaborator on August the 26th, 7pm BST, for a Collaborate Sports interactive workshop. He will be discussing the key traits in high-performance MDT support teams. All events are live and exclusive to attendees with breakout sessions for participants to collaborate and share experiences and reflections. Tickets for this event are £15 for this exclusive experience and you should visit collaboratesports.com to purchase them. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vald Performance, makers of Force Decks, the world's fastest, easiest and most powerful dual force play system. Force Decks help you to analyse neuromuscular strength, performance and imbalances in your athletes. The system can automatically detect over 15 common force play tests and analyse them with a single click, helping you to collect quick and accurate insights for your athletes. For more information on this, head over to vodperformance.com. You're of course listening to the Informed Performance Podcast. Let's get into today's episode with me, Andy McDonald, and Elliot Clark. Elliot, welcome to the show, mate. It's, uh, it's great to have you on. Oh, no, thanks, Andy. Thanks for reaching out and uh, really good to be here. We've had Ed and Tom, of course, on from Harlequins, as you uh, as you well know. So if listeners go back through the older episodes, they can find those in the in the previous episodes uh, as conversations. But would you be able to give us a little bit of background about yourself and uh, maybe describe your role and how it fits into uh, into the Quinn setup? Yeah, of course. I'm a physio working in the UK. Uh, I currently work at Harlequins Rugby Club, who play in English Premiership and I'm in my sixth season there now. Prior to that, I trained at Oxford Brooks University with a certain Alan Hazlitt, who I know you've had on the podcast already. And it was there that I was lucky enough to do some work experience with Barney Kenny, who's the head physio at England Rugby. And he was actually the one who advised me that even if I plan to eventually work in elite sports, I should consider gaining some experience in the NHS, um, as well as in amateur or semi-professional sports. So 
after graduation, I, I took that advice and I spent kind of four and a half years in the NHS. Um, two of those were doing traditional rotations and the rest was spent kind of as a senior in, in MSK. Um, and I worked in a private clinic alongside that. I um, also did three years at, at Worthen Rugby Club, uh, who play in the National Leagues and um, thoroughly enjoyed my time there. Learned some pretty harsh but, but invaluable lessons about working in rugby and it uh, gave me a bit of an introduction into to working with athletes, albeit semi-professional ones. Um, so by the time that the academy job came up with Quinns, I, I felt re- I certainly felt ready to make the move into into full time sport, um, and I was fortunate enough to you know, to get that opportunity. I, I would like to point out that although this is the route you know I took it, it doesn't mean it's the the right way. It certainly doesn't mean it's the only way. Um, you know I've worked with some outstanding practitioners uh, who went straight into sport after after graduating they've gone on to have brilliant careers so although it worked for me it, you know, it isn't for everyone so I did um, two years or so in a kind of academy senior role split when I first got to Quinns and um, and then I moved into to the rehab role about four years ago um, so I've been very fortunate in that time got some really good practitioners um, Andy Reynolds was the, the head of medical when, when I joined and, and I learned a lot from him about problem solving and clinical reasoning with difficult cases um, Adam Roberts was was there in the rehab role when when I first got there, and he now heads up the medical team at Edinburgh Rugby, and, and you know, we chat a lot about processing and, and frameworks, and, and I learned a lot from him. And then about eighteen months or so ago, uh, Mike Lancaster came over and took took the job as head of medical. He, he came over from GWS Giants in in the AFL, and and this became a bit of a bit of a turning point for me. As he he wanted to completely kind of rip up and start again with our our rehab process and. Um, kind of gave me full full autonomy to do so, and you know, I face that's pretty much what most of my time's been been spent doing doing since. And that basically leads to to my current role, which is to effectively oversee the the rear process and continue to to lead the development of our framework. And, and I do that very much alongside uh, Edley and, and Al Barnard, who look after the injured backs and forwards respectively. Uh, as well as ensuring kind of appropriate communication between all departments, but um, that will mainly be between medical uh, strength and conditioning as as well as rugby coaching. Um, and the main aim for me is is to take some pressure off of Mike as as well as Gaz Tong, our head of athletic performance. So uh, effectively, they can focus on the the day to day or the game to game kind of challenges in in the week with the rest of the squad. Um, so where that fits in, into our structure, I'm, I'm one of two senior physios. Sean Flannery's my equivalent, but he works mainly in the kind of with acute injury management, um, as well as part of a wider team that that monitors all players. And I'll, I'll still help with some of the acute stuff. So I'll triage in the morning with with the rest of the team, where we'll assess players who who may or may not train or who may need a, a discussion around modification. And I'll put a point on discussion as something we've tried not to do as a performance team is make off the hoof decisions based on one piece of information. So, you know, we make sure we take some information from our assessment, but also, you know, some screening data, chatting to the players, looking at their, their wellness and their monitoring scores. Um, and we can then discuss this as a, a performance team every morning before Gaz and Mike relay the information to, to the head coach. Um, after that, mate, I'm pretty much head down with the, with the rehabbers. So these players that come to me will typically we would have predicted to require more than five weeks of, of rehab from our initial estimations and um, I'll start with them at, at about nine o'clock and, and yeah, won't come up for air until the end of the day. 
Sounds really interesting and strategic, actually, the way you guys divide up the medical team uh, in particular in terms of like having sort of like special roles within the physio department um, as to, you know, like you said, like one person being acute, you take them on after five weeks. Um, and then you've also got other medical professionals around you. And obviously you've got Mike Lancaster as well. So it sounds like a very um, well divided kind of uh, process that you go through. Yeah, I think it works. Um, we've tried a few different ways. You know, our hands were forced a couple of years ago at a bit of movement and staff. So, so we'd all take on some acute, some some longer term, and, and and that worked fine. I think the the only issue with that may have been yeah, communication between different departments, and that was part of of kind of my my role when my role now is is to make sure that's aligned. Um, but you know, I know other clubs do it, do it in different ways, and there's no no right or wrong way. It's, it's, it's how we do it, and um, you know, I think the key the key with that is just to make sure we, we limit how many players we're looking after at one time. So if I get beyond kind of four or five players, then um, you know, my my planning, or I might not get enough time to to plan and actually optimize what they're doing in their rehab. So then we will have to um, you know, divvy those those players out. So um, I'm not the only one who will see longer term injuries. I think you know, in, in an ideal world, I would be because we'd have so so little but you know this is rugby so we're going to get them and um yeah once i get beyond four or five i think it's important that that we share the load a little bit just to make sure we're we're, you know given a the service that's that's required for for the the level we're at really yeah and these these departments are always fluid aren't they you're around the other physios you're around the other expertise that you need and so there's the conversations are happening in real time people know what's going on with other players that they're not necessarily the key person for so um I think there's always that kind of uh, crossover of, of talk between you all. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we, we work in an open space. Um, you know, I think I think it's, it's so important to share ideas. I think we, we've got a. We know that none of us have all the answers, and, and we've all got different philosophies. So I think we have to utilise that. We, we've got a relatively big medical and SNC team, so a relatively big performance team. Um, I, th- I think it's so important to uh, to share share ideas with, with these guys and. Um, you know, it takes a little bit of bit of pressure off as well to have that around you. So your your role is as um, senior rehabilitation physio, as you mentioned. Broadly speaking, what is your your personal professional approach and and your kind of philosophy for rehabbing elite athletes back to competition and performance? And uh, if you want to use any kind of um, examples or cases to make that a bit easier to illustrate, that's that's fair game. Yeah, sure. I think, and it's really important to. Uh, appreciate when we're discussing things like philosophies this is very individual to the person um so you know my approach is very individual to me and that doesn't mean it's right and it certainly doesn't mean it won't change and i think i'd I'd be quite disappointed if you know throughout the course of my career my philosophies don't change somewhat based on the experiences you know i've had in that time as it shows that you know it means i'm too closed off and and i'm not Know, in a situation where I'm opening myself up to, to grow and develop as a practitioner. But um, I'd say my, my current approach is based on some successes, but also many failures. And I'm sure this will resonate with list, listeners. And I think particularly those working in elite sport, you know, it's almost a, you know, a failure isn't acceptable, but I think we've got to accept we are going to fail from time to time. And it's so important that, you know, we just critically reflect on these and, and just try and help us progress and, and improve as practitioners. But I guess that the foundations of, of my current philosophy or the things I put high value on are, are as follows. 
I think first and foremost, you've got to get to know the player. Uh, I, I can't put a high enough value on that, Andy. I think we, we have to get to know the player before they enter this process, or certainly at the beginning of this process. Um, we could have the best technical technical model, world-class technical model, but if you don't know what the players' values are and how to get the most out of them within that model, I think your chances of success are, are significantly reduced. So that's what I'd put the highest value on. I think the next thing is to have an agreed framework with your environment and in which you work in. And I think this framework has to you know, incorporate a physical, a neurocognitive and an appreciation of psychological demands. Um, and I think once you have that, you can start moving towards a, a concept of injured player performance and reconditioning. And then suddenly it starts looking like more of an opportunity instead of being kind of deep into you know, long-term injury or rehabilitation. I think that's so important. I think it has to be a, a criteria-driven process. I think that's a non-negotiable now, and we can't use you know time frames to guide us. And, and I think that's pretty widely accepted you know, within sport now. I think you have to know your sport, and you've got to know what return to performance looks like. You know, how can we possibly plan you know plan a progressive rehabilitation process if we don't know what the end goal has to look like? And then, if you don't know what the end goal looks like, then we've got to incorporate the coaches, and we've got to learn, and we've got to upskill ourselves to know that. And I think the final thing with this is I think we've got to, got to put a high value on communication and planning. So that's communication within our department, um, across other departments, with the coaches and also with the players. And I think once you've got that, Andy, as a, effectively as a foundation, then your technical elements can, can almost build up, build up on that. And, you know, it's easy for me to say I've got a pyramid in front of me that I can, <laughs> that I can, that I can use that's difficult to imagine. But I think that's... That's important. We've got we've got to lay these foundations first, and then the, the technical elements can kind of build from that. Yeah, and I think you, you have to have a. I think you have to have a fairly clear framework in your mind, and and I guess also in front of you, because it's so easy to get lost in the evidence. It's very easy to get lost in the jargon and the process. And I think you have to have um, a framework purely to kind of ground where you where you are, what you're doing, and how it relates to the bigger picture. And I think. That's what I, for me, that, that's at least where I think the frameworks provide value and understanding other people because that's kind of like the tool that guides you through the process of the details. Absolutely, um, yeah. And I think one thing there, Andy, as well, is I think that framework has to be agreed with, with everyone. So I think a mistake I've made in the past is you, you spend a long time developing a process or a framework which in your, in your mind works and it fits your, your philosophies and your approach, but... You know, we're trying to extend this out to, to multiple practitioners. And I think, particularly in high-performance environments, you, know, you need to appreciate that people do have different philosophies and they're going to have more success if they can utilise them within a, a consistent framework but not having something shoved down their throat. And I think that, that that's so important. You know, for me, who am I to tell someone else with 10-plus years' experience in rehabilitating sports injuries you know, how, how to do that? I can't. Yeah, absolutely not. So I think that's important, mate. It's agreed, and multiple people are involved in in that process. And you you touched on communication within that, but something I think you can never be too good good at in any sport or setting is setting expectations for the prognosis. And in your setting, communicating with playing coaches when an injured player is likely to be available for selection again or back to training. And you know, rugby obviously produces its fair share of battle scars. Is there any kind of fundamental approaches that you take 
to communicate with coaches and manage the, the sort of return to play expectations? Yeah, I think first and foremost, even though we're, you know, we've made it clear we're a criteria-driven process and the coaches buy into that, but they still want a time frame. That's fine. We, we know that within it we're, we're going to be using you know, good benchmarking to, to progress through our, our process, but, but they still need a time frame and that won't change. And the players want a time frame as well. Um, so I think that's really important. And then the thing for me is that the communication has to be, has to be early and it has to be clear. And then I think you've, you've got to put high value on, on regular updates for the coaches. And I think you can't be afraid to, to let them know if things aren't going as planned, because the, the worst thing we can do is a week, two weeks before they expect a player to be available for selection is to kind of pull the rug from under their carpet, the rug from under their feet, sorry. And say, actually, no, we need another week or two. You know, that's when that's when conversations then get emotive, don't they? And that's understandable. So I think we need to have an appreciation of, of the situation that the coaches are, are in. That being said, our ducks have to be in a row before any communication gets transferred to to players or coaches. Um, so within our our current decision making process, you know, we we try and keep it quite consistent that. You know, once we have relevant information from, uh, you know, imaging or consultations with, with specialists or post-surgical um, information, we can then sit down as a performance team and start laying out, right, th- this is how long we, we predict they're going to need in, in rugby, but we want the coaches and player involved in that. So we have an estimate, but, but we're part of that to one side. This is where we, how long we think based on, you know, on our estimate of our knowledge of, of the injury, how long we think they're going to need on field to prepare for that. And we can use experiences from, from previous injuries for that. And this is how long we think we're going to need to, to properly reload the tissues to, to tolerate that. And then from there, we can, we can agree our benchmarks and, and say what, what our exit criteria is going to be through each phase. And we should be able to come with, with a, at least a range of a time frame from that point and say, okay, well, this is going to, you know, we predict this will take 10 to 12 weeks. And then we can relay, relay that to the coaches. But I think that, that that's the key, Andy. It's got to be, you have to have your ducks in a row before you do it. And you have to have those conversations before going straight to, certainly straight to, to the coaches, but to the player as well to start discussing, you know, return to play timeframes. Yeah. And I think, I feel like you can go back to a coach and you can say, look, the, you know, maybe the acute stage has, has taken longer than we were expecting and it's going to knock the time frame on. I think you can make changes to it and, and change their expectations. But I think, like you said, you want to get your ducks in a row, especially at the beginning, because you don't want to be every five minutes changing the picture for them, because um, that's just going to stress them out and probably reduce their confidence in you as a as a clinician. Yeah, that, that's a really good point, actually. You know, I said we you know we've got to do regular updates, but you're right; you've got to pick the the right moments to do that. Um, and I think you're right; you, you don't want to cause unnecessary stress by you know by doing that at too regular an interval. We're all applied scientists to varying degrees in this field, but recently we've had a ton of webinars, podcasts, which I'm guilty of, um, and and just presentations and educational content because of the time off we've had with COVID at this time of recording. But, you know, the part of a webinar or presentation that tends to make me sit up and pay attention is when the presenter, the coach or the clinician pieces together the science and shows progressions and links ideas practically um, rather than just purely academically in in your environment you're not in a kind of purist sport like sprinting where the framework or the progression 
can look a little bit clean because the training very closely reflects the actual competition. Rugby obviously has a huge mix of uh, physical qualities and perhaps complexity you consider, and then you go into a, a, just a, a full chaos environment competitively. How do you kind of select your rehab framework and what concepts or considerations go into this with all that complexity in mind? Yeah, good question. Um, where do I start with this? Okay, I think it's important firstly to distinguish a framework or a process with a protocol. I think uh, a framework's there to encourage consistent language and communication between uh, departments within your performance team and your backroom staff, but as well as with the players. And we can also use this to, to simplify and break down the complexity of the, the tasks the players are going to need to perform you know, at that end stage. Um, and as you said, it, it's a complex sport rugby, and, and we know there's multiple functions, not just within teams, but actually within positions. You know, look, There's differences, for example, within a back row player who may, whose strength may be about carrying into contact. So we know that that's going to be their, you know, their primary function within a game. And another back row might be in a more old fashioned scavenger going from rock to rock. So even within positions, there's differences that we need to consider. But for me, your principles of rehab don't change. And I think the primary goal of our earlier phases are still going to be to restore homeostasis to restore capacity and tissue tolerance to restore athletic function you know that doesn't that doesn't change i don't think that changes you know within any sport what you have within that and you know the drills or the exercise you prescribe within that might change but the actual principles of that for me don't change and i think the number one question you have to ask yourself throughout the process whatever phase you're in is what is the thing at this point that's preventing this player from returning to rugby and then you make sure you're your daily or your weekly planning is structured to, to reflect that. I think the, the important part when, when we're looking at a framework as an overview is how do we decide when a player is ready to move on? Okay, Because they need to earn the right, don't they? We can't just, again, we, we say we're going to be more criteria-driven and we can't rely on timeframes to guide us. So they have to earn the right, and that is where your benchmarking comes in. And your early benchmarking will typically be more clinical because these are likely to be used throughout the process to gauge tolerance to loading as well as inform decisions on you know appropriate progressions and these might be things like you know, swelling range of movement isometric testing on a handout dynamometer whatever you choose but they're going to be more clinical in nature i think that's important because if we don't have that set baseline how are we ever going to know if if someone's reacting positively or negatively to what you're doing hmm. And then your, your later benchmarks, they might be more focused on performance and you know, your strength and power diagnostics, your on-field benchmarks. And that's great. And it gives, you know, these give really nice objectivity. Um, I'd say the, the one thing, caveat to it is, was, you know, certainly in sport, data is really starting to, to take over. And it's so easy for us now to collect data. But we've got to remember our, our coach's eye still adds real value to this. And I think we've got to have an appreciation that's part of where the art comes in. And actually... You know, we know that a player can can cheat a certain test by using, you know, either maladaptive movement strategies. So the, the common one isn't is is your your single leg hop testing, and, and they can they can gauge the same distance, but actually when you you break down their movement pattern, they just drive through the hip, and they're not using their knee, for example. So I think, you know, that that for me is really important when it comes to benchmarking through your framework that that we we don't lose that kind of art to it with, with your coach's eye 
And do you ever kind of use, do you, obviously the coaching eye is really important. And I think it's a bit of a paradox, isn't it? Because we spend too much time sometimes looking at data and looking at technology and not actually looking at the quality of the movement. And, and, and like you said, using our actual coaching eye. Um, but then equally, we also need to try and be objective with our coaching eye. How have you kind of navigated sort of with that in mind, I guess, like quantitative versus qualitative analysis of movement? Yeah, so we do use 2D motion analysis and, and we're pretty happy um, you know, with our interpretation of, of the information we get and, and that that's consistent enough amongst our, our practitioners that we can include this as part of our you know, wider profiling and benchmarking um but whilst we do have access to to provide consistent if we wanted 3d motion analysis um at the moment it, it is the interpretation of, of the data collected so if i'm honest if we feel someone is at the stage where um you know that what we're getting with our coaches eye or with 2d motion analysis isn't giving us the answers we want um or if the player is particularly driven by you know, fancy objectivity then then if i'm honest we'd probably just send them to to Ender and the team at the SSC in Ireland for for full 3D biomechanical assessment as as they do it regularly and and you know we, we can work with them and, and get some much better uh, much better data from them doing it that way. And I guess that helps you problem solve with the more uh, sort of complex cases um, if you're going to escalate it to that level. Yeah, exactly. And the other part of it, Andy, is is just the you know, the change in environment for the player as well, isn't it? I think that's that's really important. So, um, yes, it gives us really, really nice objective data, but it doesn't necessarily have to be a, a problem player or problem athlete, you know, that goes there. It might just be someone that, you know, they've been in the in the process for a long time. They, they just need a bit of a change-up and actually hearing a different voice, getting, you know, good objective data explained to them by someone else can be just as powerful as, as the actual data we're receiving itself. And, you know, we've mentioned kind of healing timeframes and uh, criteria-based rehab. And let, let's, so let's park, re, uh, let's park healing timeframes aside um, and the specifics of different injuries. But let's say you've got over the line on pain management, load acceptance and tolerance, and you've progressed the player's kind of forces through to dynamic activities. So reconditioning options are starting to become more typical and running-based for your, for your rugby athletes. How do you strategize, break down, and then sort of map out the reconditioning process? Yeah, I think what we can't have, Andy, is the player firstly getting injured on, on their return. That's a, an absolute non-negotiable for us. Um, but also not being able to perform at the required level or intensity um, for a long period of time on their first game back. I think if that happens you know, as a performance team, um, you know, we failed. And I think this is where good understanding of, of your your initial needs analysis, but also the worst case scenario for that player in that position becomes vital and um, it aids this concept, doesn't it, of, of preparing to perform opposed to preparing to play. Um, and I think preparing to perform is a, a concept that's branded around, banded around quite wide, widely now. And my issue with that is, Obviously, it's great and it makes absolute sense and we should, of course, be striving to that. But sometimes reality does need to kick in and the the situation or the demands of the team at certain points in time might end up dictating that for us and, and we have to be be prepared for that. And, and I think this is where discussions and decision-making within the, the team and we go back to that concept of communication becomes so key. 
But for example, if we, you know, if we've got five centres to choose from, and three or four are currently injured, short or long term, and we have we have number five, and and he's you know close to coming back, and we feel that you know the, the old fashioned concept of medically they're probably fit to return. Well, it it would take an awful lot of guts, I think, and and that's a very difficult conversation to say to the head coach as a performance team. We think this player needs longer and we can't you cannot select him, you're gonna to have to play someone out of position because we don't think they're ready to perform because they haven't passed, you know, certain criteria that we've all decided, coaches included, that they haven't passed certain criteria to to return. So that so that's just one part of it, Andy. I think it's really important when it comes to preparing to perform. Yes, it's what we strive for. Sometimes reality has to to take over. I think if you have multiple players available, even if they're an important player, then absolutely. I think as long as everyone buys into that that concept, then then we very much aim to return them to, to perform and trying to bring them back as well, if not better than, than before they were injured. And I think we can prepare and plan using objective data. So things like ball time, you know, ball in play time, the number of collisions, number of scrums, and then some of our traditional GPS metrics, so things like total volume, high-speed running, sprint distance meters per minute, etc. But I think what we also need to consider is the things we can't measure. And these are often, from my experience, the things that are missed. Um, you know, we're fortunate. We know there's consistency within our training week and that the intensity and density of our training sessions will exceed that of a match. So what that, you know, I think for me then, we have to consider why does a match then seem harder to a player? Because that consistently happens, I think, in chatting to people in all sports. The, the demands of a match will always appear relatively more difficult for the player. And I think, you know, within rugby, we have a, a few reasons for that. I think, firstly, the type and intent of the collision is, is different in a game. Um, there's obviously more chaos and pressure on decision-making, so effectively an increase in neurocognitive demand. Um, but also the, the psychological load of match play at the highest level and you know, the psychological load of the build-up to that. Um, and I'd, I'd argue, you know, how many worst-case scenario models actually include this? And, you know, considering it's proven that stress and anxiety have a direct effect on the cognitive processes underlying um, things like optimal decision-making. So an example would be a reduction in attention, which would lead to reduction in peripheral vision, which, as you can imagine, Andy, is, is pretty important for rugby. I think it's something that's massively undervalued and you know underused within within sport but that aside I think when we go back to the physical I love this concept of moving from kind of high control to high chaos that Matt Taberno and his colleagues in football have put out there and I think we we found uh you know, we were doing something something similar kind of a similar concept to what we were using practically but they just they've put it into a brilliant framework and then we know that just progressing running and matching up GPS metrics doesn't prepare players to train, certainly in rugby. Um, so the application of this continuum for our sport in particular needs to account for the specific demands of, of the position. Um, if you like, Andy, do you want me to run you through a, an example of a, a shoulder injury? Because that would be a bit different to what, what they've had in football. Yeah, that'd be good because also the lower limb gets a lot of noise. So um, yeah. a shoulder would be perfect. Okay, yeah, no problem. So... If, if we take a, um, a back row forward following a shoulder stabilisation and 
before we go into this, but I mean, we're on field at this point, so I'd have expected as part of their um, general reloading process, they would have done a little bit of, you know, very controlled contact work in the gym. But our, our first stage, which Inter Berno and his colleagues would, would um, characterise as like the high control stage, you know, the contact there will be anticipated, hitting static, tar- static targets, so things like shoulder tackles, cover tackles, rock clearance, um, carrying into a static pad. And the player would lead the, the technical aspect of that. But what we can do, we can manipulate some of the variables that you'd also manipulate, you know, running with a lower limb injury. So things like the intensity. So in this situation or in this context, that might be the, the percentage of, of their you know, perceived maximum effort as they go into contact. You can ma- manipulate the volume. So that might be the number of contacts as well as the density. So the work to rest ratio. So, you know, effectively in this first stage we can manipulate those variables but everything they're doing there's pretty low neurocognitive demand on that um but what we want to do is start replicating if we can some of the um, kind of energy system demands that they're going to be encountering as they they return into into training then if we skip a couple of stages when we get into this kind of third stage or kind of transition into chaos, we get the coach then to lead the drills and these then become more reactive. So there is an increase in neurocognitive demand. And that will be, we make sure this is pretty consistently around 70 to 100% of, of max intensity. But then the coaches will lead how dense these sessions are and, and they will typically reflect the positional demands. But if we're honest, it's rugby, so they're going to be hard bouts of high intensity exercise. We're putting a big demand on the, you know, the phosphogen and the glycolytic systems. Um, and examples of drills there might be, you know, they make a tackle back to their feet. They've got to repeat that, compete to the, compete for the ball. They've then got to get into line and make a, a defensive decision based on the coach's cue. Um, what's important in this stage for us is we know the majority of traumatic shoulder injuries will occur in the last quarter of a game. So we've got to make sure we expose the player to collisions and kind of high-intensity well when they're fatigued. Um, so we might, in this stage, start reversing the, the session plan just to account for this while the chaos is still relatively lower. That makes sense. Um, and then we will try and get them used to the, the normal structure of the week. I think as Ed and, Ed and Batch said to you when, when they were on, we obviously trained three days in a, in a row at the beginning of the week, albeit the first session is very light. But it is, you know, we still need to get the, the player used to being on feet three times in a row. I think that, that's important. And we do it in this stage. And then the last two stages, as you know, as you can imagine, it's all about reintegrating into training. So we're lucky that at Quinns, our coaches really buy into a phase reintegration, and, and they accommodate players in in drills that we, you know, we've decided as a as a group are, are appropriate for that player. Um, so the fourth stage, you know, might include contact drills within with the rest of the squad, but the parameters might be be set. So things like the space where they do it, and the time in which they're in that drill, or the density. Um, and then once we're in stage five, it's it's all guns blazing, it's full unrestricted training, and we're just monitor how many collisions they've been exposed to. And you know, we've got to ensure they're beyond you know what we've decided the worst case scenario. So for back row, for example, that might be 40, 45 collisions in a game. Um, and we've got to make sure that that you know they've been exposed to that above that. Why where I'd argue the psychological demand is lower because it's in training, even though it's starting to creep up because they know they're getting closer to play. I think that you know that some of the internal load is still lower so we've got to take that beyond their worst case scenario now i think that the only the final point with this andy is our post-return management and i think this is really important in rugby and, and for me the 
our, our final phase, our return to performance phase has to continue for at least two to four weeks beyond their return. And I think with, with things like, um, you know, upper limb injuries, but if I'm honest, it, it's, it's going to be all, all injuries within rugby. We know the recovery from, from matches and, you know, repeat collisions, there will be ongoing changes in, you know, like biochemical and endocrine markets for up to 48, 72 hours. Um, and that's actually been directly correlated to the number of collisions. And, you know, as we know, the intent of those collisions are likely to be higher in a game. I think those the first couple of weeks back into training, we've got to be the Monday for us wouldn't make a difference because there's no no contact. The Tuesday there's a minimum amount of contact. That Wednesday session, we've got to be confident they've recovered appropriately to you know to be able to handle that. You just mentioned how good your kind of playing staff are at reintegrating players into um, uh, into rugby based training. How key is it that they're very flexible and educated? I guess from your standpoint for you to be able to walk into their office and say, can we adapt this part of the session? How, you know, is that an easy conversation for them to kind of to try and change their um, their plan for the technical aspects? With, with our current coaching group, yes, that, that is easy. But I think, again, it goes back to, to communication, Andy, and what we were talking about earlier. So we will know the week before when we meet as a performance team and run through through the injured players, we're going to know which players might be involved in, in certain bits of rugby. And a lot of the decisions are made then. They might be based on, on outcomes from you know, subsequent sessions, but a lot of our decisions about what will happen you know, in, in the following training week will happen you know, the Wednesday before. So we've actually we've got time to relay that to the coaches so they've got time to plan. I think if, if you're trying to have those conversations last minute, just before the sessions, it, it becomes very difficult. So actually, you know, firstly, we're, we're fortunate because our coaches buy into that and, and they're, they're quite heavily involved in the, in the rehab process. But also because we have those conversations with plenty of time, I can then, you know, send an appropriate update, you know, to the coaching staff and say what aspects of, of rugby we, you know, we think they're going to be ready for. And then we can just confirm that, you know, at shorter notice, but they're already ready to accommodate it. So it's all, I mean, it's, it all goes back to, to clear, you know, having clear communication channels, and that 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 for me is why there's such high value on it within a, within this process. Yeah, and I think you just have the communication has to be incredibly organised, doesn't it? It's not just a case of having people in the room. You've got to be very structured in how and when, and, and like you said earlier, I guess you've got to be very deliberate and have your ducks in a row for these conversations. Um, it's not just because communication can get misconstrued as being a bit fluffy, can't it? Because we all know it's important, but I think you. It sounds like you guys are unbelievably organised in how you actually um, practice that communication in real time. Yeah, I think it's also also important to have a bit of an understanding or a good understanding of of what the sessions look like and what the drills look like. Um, you know, again, if, if you if if you, you we will get challenged on on what aspects of rugby the players can can be involved with, in, in, and you know, it's a, it's a real positive that we've got. A coach, you know, a coach and staff that, that are so keen to integrate. But obviously, that has the other challenge of they're they're going to want them involved more and more once they get a bit of a sniff of that, and and that's good. That that's good. It challenges our thought processes, and um, but you know, our understanding of what is involved in the drills is so important with this, mate. And if you know, you can get caught really short if you're trying to have conversations with that without that kind of back, background knowledge of it. 
we hit the shoulder a little bit then and uh, it would be a waste to not talk to you about return to running and I haven't really had anyone talk about return to running yet on the podcast so I think it'd be it'd be a perfect topic for us to try and tackle excuse the pun great um, pressure. return to running or how we approach it clinically naturally carries um, some artistic license just like a lot of our return to play processes do um, can we first just kind of try and talk in principle about how you approach it and then maybe if you can we can compare a couple of examples or cases like a soleus versus a hamstring and what their processes look like for the return to run yeah sure i think it's a good question because it, it you know it's something where like you said there's a lot of artistic license to it and if, if you go to the literature you're not going to get an awful lot of help um, and that's probably right because obviously different tissues respond to um, tasks like running it in different ways and I think you need to have an appreciation of that so it you know for me the reason I've delved into this further in the past is you know I've I've run people far too early and I've run people far too late and um, you know trying to find that sweet spot is a uh, you know, it is a challenge, and I think with most lower limb injuries, and particularly longer-term ones, getting back to running is always brought up in conversation. It remains quite a big psychological milestone. So I think we've got to give that the can-do diligence it, it deserves. Um, but I think the most important thing is once they're running, we're not pulling them in and out because either they don't feel right or you know, the on-field S&C coaches or the rugby coaches have a look and don't think they look right. That's that's the most important thing because, you know, psychologically that, that's going to hit them really hard if we're pulling them in and out. And I think also we don't want to be in a situation where we're having to make decisions that morning about whether or not they're running. I think in with the longer-term uh, injuries, we should, have, we should have a good enough process leading into that that once they're running, we're confident they're going to get through they're going to get through at least the, you know, the introductory runs. And then, you know, that's all about how we then, the challenge is then progressing them appropriately once they're on field. Does that make sense? Yeah. Great. So therefore, um, the decision-making has to take into account your biomechanical and physiological demands. And you've got to have a bit of understanding of that. So as a starting point and a most basic level, we know that the body's going to have to attenuate and disseminate anywhere between two to seven times body weight. So straight away that says to me that we'd have had to put a decent amount of load just through the system anyway before we get them doing anything on field as a as the most basic rule. Have a bit of understanding on functional anatomy and also have an idea of their current tissue tolerance and capacity. So how long has it been since they last ran? What sort of controlled load have we been able to put through it in the gym? And how you know, is there a a gap to bridge between them and what they're doing on field. Um, and you don't need me to tell you that, you know, this should never be time led. Okay. We know this, you know, we've got to have you know, some sort of um, benchmarking process to, you know, to give us confidence. They're going to be able to tolerate the, the demands on field. Um, but if I just take it back a, a little bit, when we're in our, the earlier phases of rehab, I mentioned earlier, obviously we're part of that, goal of that is to restore athletic function and obviously you know running is it's a field sport so running is is part of of that kind of wider wider umbrella of athletic function um i actually think it's really important especially for a lower limb injury that we get them going into those patterns you know in safe environments like a hydro pool um as early as we can um and i bill Knowles talks about this a lot he talks about you know, these peripheral injuries having a central consequence well it's a great way to um, you know, firstly, groove some 
some normal motor patterns and actually restrict that effect of cortical smudging. So it's a really nice stimulus on their somatosensory system, but also actually just taking them out of their injury a little bit, you know, and, and, and doing that early actually has really nice benefits from, from what we're doing throughout the process. But if we get specific on on running and, and kind of a testing battery, do we want to use or do we want to, to see them perform before we're, we're confident that they can go out and run? So non-negotiable for me is their peak plant flexion force and whichever way you choose to do that. But for us, we do that on a force plate. And, um, you know, I, from our normative data, and I like to see, you know, at least three times body weight in standing and then at least two times their body weight in sitting. So for me, the compensations up the chain as a result of poor kind of foot, ankle and calf function just isn't worthwhile for me to, to skip that and, and allow them to run whatever, whatever the injury. And I think we should actually consider looking at kind of the rate of force development as well. You know, we know that foot contacts and running typically range from kind of 90 to 170 milliseconds. So the speed of kind of the, the speed in which they can produce that force is almost as important as the, the force itself. And actually this can guide a bit of your rehab because if peak force is appropriate, but the time to peak is slow, then it's likely just an issue with neural drive. And we can directly address that and it shouldn't take too many sessions to do so. Um, so then you just have that toss up the risk versus reward. Well, do we get them out on the field and see if the system can kind of train itself there? Or do we just keep them in a, in a more controlled environment and, and train it ourselves? For me, it'd be the latter. But again, that's an individual thing. Um, I also like to, to assess their kind of reactive quality. So we just assess their RSI and, and we use the 10 hop. 10 hop tests to do that. I think there's no reason we're doing that over other measures of RSI, but we've got lots of normative data now on that. So for us, it's a, it's a reliable measure to use and, and gives us good information. And especially with lower limb injuries, you know, we will review their isolated lower limb strength profile and we should be collecting that anyway within our rehab framework and we can make decisions along the way about, um, you know, what, what percentage of their either limb symmetry index or um, of their previous level we want that to be before we get them running. So some of the, some of the uh, data on ACL, for example, would suggest that just needs to be at 70%. But then I think there is argument to say, well, okay, that's fine, but we don't want to be chasing that whilst we're also doing stuff on field. So again, that's where the it just informs discussions within the within the team about what our priority is. And as you said earlier, Andy, you know, we go back to what's the number one thing stopping this player playing rugby. If it's strength, then that's got to take priority. And we can just part running inside. We can keep them going in, in other ways. Um, you know, we can still do lots of drilling, lots of mechanics works. We can tick them over on the alter G and progress them through body weight percentage and I understand that the kinematic differences between that and running. But again, we're just trying to keep some force, some form of uh, neuromuscular stimulus in there. But if, if, if our main priority is strength and, and we, and we know with certain injuries, you know, that can be slow in the later stages. No, absolutely. We've got to focus on that. I think the, the final thing we have to consider, and again, it's more from a rehab point of view, but we, we can put numbers on this and we can make it you know, more scientific, is ensuring there's an appropriate exposure to the kind of high number of foot contacts that player is going to be exposed to when, when they get running. So there's multiple ways to do it. You know, I've already mentioned the alter G. Again, that can be a nice way just to get repeated foot contacts in. Um, I think for me, using 
typical more kind of speed focused drilling and, and mechanics work is is vital and our strength and conditioning staff are really good with this obviously we've got James Wilde who consults for us but um, our SNC guys are, are outstanding with this so I very much leave that to them um, and we know the demands of that you could argue are, are close to running so if you can do that why can't you run but what we can do is is just break up break it up and uh, effectively cluster the task into into sets and get a bit of rest in between that and then the the two other kind of components we, we can utilize um, would be skipping which we know is going to have slightly lower vertical ground reaction force than running and you know our strategy then might be to to gradually increase the number of content probably take it beyond to where we're gonna we're gonna have them when they're running but on the other side of that things like you know horizontal single leg hopping which we know as a higher demand on the foot ankle calf complex than running um so then if we want to look to load them super maximally this for me is is a good way of doing that and you know we know that if we could do repeated horizontal hot work then and they can do that and they don't react and they can back them up from session to session and we can slowly increase the, the number of ground contacts with either skipping or or one you know work on the autogy or with, with our drill work we know at that point combined with some of the the more objective data that there's a pretty good chance that they're going to go go and run and we're not going to have an issue. That makes sense. Yeah, and I think the drills are good, aren't they? Because, I mean, you mentioned it earlier that you can you can get somebody doing like a forward hop test and they just bypass the knee as much as they can and cheat or compensate through the hip. And I think the drills are nice because you can, if they are a little bit guarded around loading their knee through dynamic uh, running style movements, then you can actually let them use the hip at the beginning and then you can choose your drills to phase out the hip and gradually rely more on knee flexion as an example based on earlier to kind of take them through that process uh, mechanically but also from a psychological standpoint as well i think the drills kind of you you can approach them or the benefits from them from a number of different angles yeah absolutely and and if if there is a a part of the chain that you know we, we decide isn't work and what we consider optimally then we can explore that more and you know we, we may go down a route of, of some more isolated testing to see if there's any any deficiencies within that and if there aren't then we know that actually is you know is more of a neuromuscular thing and we need to spend you know the appropriate time you know repeating those drills you know we've just spoken about kind of the principles behind uh, some of the principles behind return to running can you maybe just illustrate the differences using that kind of those principles in your framework as to how maybe a soleus return to running may differ from say a hamstring. Cause I think that'll give the listeners um, some sort of usable maybe, or some tangible context. Yeah, certainly. I think this is probably an area where you can lean on, on literature and certainly some of the biomechanical studies that have been done a bit um, that can inform our decision-making somewhat. So we know that, you know, soleus versus the hamstring, they've got very different demands um, during running. So I think it's the work from Dawn et al. Um, as you describe about the soleus working really hard, even at slower speeds, so, you know, we're looking at around 85% of their, their MVC. Um, and that's because the dominant strategy is to push through the ground forcefully to increase your stride length. Whereas as speed increases, and I think in that study it was about seven meters per second. Yeah, um, it is, which yeah. for us, great, which when, within our cohort would be around 70 to 85% of their, their max velocity speed, depending on what, what position they play in. Um, and once we get to those speeds, the force demands are typically generated around the hip joint. So your hamstrings can be obviously working significantly harder. So 
if we think about an isolated strength profile to, to guide us, the player with the Soleus tear needs to exceed his scores for me more than 90% of their either their previously collected max strength data or at least no more than a 10% in limb symmetry before they've even earned the right to start focusing on kind of speed strength work or reactive, you know, plyometric reactive strength work. Whereas with the Hansen, there's probably argument they can run a lot earlier and, and by holding them back until they have a completely clean strength profile, you know, neuromuscularly, we may have negative effects there. Um, but I think with the hamstrings in particular, a strict criteria on strength and, for me, a rate of force development profile before they start going through their velocity progressions, i.e. above, in our case, it would be above 70% of their max V, is, is max velocity is, is key. So, yes, we can get them running, but they've got to stay, stay at that level and we have to manipulate, you know, how, like the, the constraints within that run to make sure that, that we're keeping them within within a certain speed and we keep them there until we're happy they've they've you know gone on and um and effectively completed a, an appropriate strength profile so for example with the hammer the criteria you know we may look at and i say we may look at because again it, it differs from person to person but the discussions we'd have around it we typically look at um a hip force test within 10 percent of their targets that could be both peak force or and or rate of force development. So for those, if you haven't seen the hip force, it's similar to, I think, what in one of, um, I think it's Taberna actually, again, in one of the studies he did, did like a posterior um, chain isometric test. I think Ed's described this before. We've basically got the, the hip at 140 or 160 degrees um, bar above the hips, and they just drive up into that. So it's a hip extension movement effectively. So we know that it's going to be a shared load you know, with hamstrings and, and other hip extensors, but you know, for me, it's a, it's a good measure. Um, we've we've got a Nord board, so I think we utilise that equipment, and we say we want their their Nordic scores within ten percent of of the target. Um, their endurance testing for me should already should already be there before we get them running. But if not, again, before we start going to to high speed, well, that's got to be within ten percent of their target. And then you might have a concentric marker and. We don't use isokinetic dynamometry for, for hamstrings, but that'd be one option. You do a six rep max on a prone curl. You know, there's there's a bit of bit of license for that, but I think a good concentric mark is also also important. But then within that, and again, similar to the slayers, that appropriate exposure to a decent speed strength stimulus. Um, and then once you've got that, you know, for me, you've got more. You can have more confidence that the player will be ready to go through a gradual progression of their velocity on. On field, you know, we know the best way to condition the hamstring to, to sprinting is to sprint. And I'm sure there'll be some people who look at that criteria and say, well, that's very, you know, specific clinical criteria. With, you know, we're combining that with, with a progressive progression of their velocity. So we, we're still appreciating that, you know, the best way to condition the hammy to, to the low demands that they need to, you know, they need to tolerate to sprint is to sprint and to be progressive with that. But for me, the, you know, you, you'll have more confidence in going into that that progression if you've got a, you know, a really nice um, battery of tests that that's shown a, a good both strength profile, but also that they're showing ability to kind of produce that that force quickly. I think you've done a really good job mate, of, of describing that because I think it's uh, for people that haven't worked in sport, it's very easy to assume that the return to running process is similar for both of them, but the demands that, like you said, that the 
the muscles involved or the muscles of injury that we're talking about here, their demands force-wise are very different at different speeds of running. So the actual process is, yes, it's running, but it's very different in both contexts um, as to how you guide through that process. Yeah, absolutely. And look, I was almost hesitant to, to talk about it because I think, again, I, it can't. we don't want it to come across as if it's protocol and that this will change from individual to individual. And, um, you know, I've, I've been stung a few times and, you know, I've getting people running too early and, and you know, I've, I've had a few failures with that, which is potentially why I might be loading these guys, you know, super maximally. Um, and that's just based on my experiences. I know, you know, I've talked to loads of clinicians who, who will disagree with that and, and will get just as much success, maybe even more by, you know, doing it another way and, and getting them running earlier. But for me, you know, ha- having the comp, you know, having criteria like this, having a good testing battery before you progress into it just takes takes that um, any aspect of doubt. And, you know, you've got to remember it in rugby, we've got a lot of other components to to, to work with as well, we still got to consider scrummaging. We've got to consider kicking in some players, line out jumping, um, contact, which we've discussed already. So you know, to be, I, I think we, we need to be able to focus on, on other areas. That's why for me, the the, the running criteria has to be a, a pretty extensive profile. Well, mate, thanks so much. You guys uh, at Harlequins have always been incredibly transparent about what you do, why you do it, and uh, and just very honest about everything that you do. Um, and open to sharing it so always appreciate any of you guys from harlequins but elliot thanks so much for coming on mate and um uh giving us a fantastic insight as to how you approach rehab in professional rugby i know thank you i really enjoyed that and it's a real pleasure and i think you guys do a great job with the podcast and you know what, what i would say is if if anyone wants to discuss anything you know i, I love um get, you know, debating these things and certainly if if anyone's disagreed with anything please get in touch and you know i'd, I'd love to, to talk things through with you share ideas um i think one thing this kind of lockdown period has shown is that you know when we come together and, and share more ideas within our you know within our um sort of sports medicine for sport sporting performance field of sporting performance i think has been you know has been a massive plus point of this lockdown so if anyone does want to reach out and get in touch please feel free to and certainly when you're over andy make sure you pop in and come and spend some time with us oh for sure yeah i'll definitely do that and um where's the where's the best place for people to follow you are you active on social media or not um certainly not active <laughs> i'm on it <laughs> um, uh, i'm on twitter I'm, I'm trying to be a, a bit more active with it um but you know I, i'm on twitter that's probably the, the best way to find me so um i'm going to find my twitter handle now i don't even know it so my twitter handle is E Clark Physio. There you go. I don't know how I came up with that. <laughs> <laughs> cool. We'll, we'll link that in the notes as well for the episode. Uh, brilliant. But if, um, but yeah, if, if anyone's getting in contact, that's probably the best, the best place to do it. Um, but yeah, so I'd, I'd love to hear from from people and, and share ideas. Cool. Well, I appreciate your time, mate. And um, always good to uh, talk shop with you. Cheers, Andy. Take care, mate. Big thanks to Elliot for coming on today's show and again to Harlequins for allowing their staff to continue being transparent, which can only help push all of us forwards as a collective. Please make sure you subscribe to the show. Podcast apps like social media work on algorithms. So if you're enjoying the conversations we put out there, then please, please just share and subscribe our show. That's the number one thing that enables us to grow and improve our offering. Thanks for listening to today's episode of Informed Performance with me, Andy McDonald. Catch up with us next week for more performance and sports medicine insights.